risk is our business. That's what the starship is all about. That's why we're aboard her. Bridge to all decks. Have no fear. Sargon is here. (laughs) And so are Scott and Steve and Ralph for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris. And I feel like this could be a dangerous episode, and I'm not sure what's going to happen. But I think on Enterprise Incidents, Scott, risk is our business. That's what this podcast is all (laughs) about. And that is why Ralph Sinensky is aboard her for his fifth episode of Star Trek Return to Tomorrow, uh, an episode that is famous for one particular reason, but an episode that stands out for many, many reasons. And I want to ask Steve, like, like how have your thoughts been about Return to Tomorrow for all these years? Uh, I, I definitely like this episode. I like it a lot. And in particular, what I've always liked about it is it's so much fun watching Shatner and in particular Nimoy get to play this kind of a role. Yeah, absolutely. Especially Nimoy and, uh, you know, uh, Shatner is, uh, I think when a lot of people like point to to Shatner kind of like laying it on a little bit thick, this is one of the episodes they turn to. But uh, I I think he lays it on thick in a way that's appropriate. uh, And we'll get into all that. But once again, joining us, the episode's director, the the legend himself, (laughs) Ralph Sinetsky is joining us again on Enterprise Incidents. Ralph, thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. And you're right. This is going to be a risky one. <laughs> a risk, risk is your business too. But uh, so the question, Ralph, for you, as and we've asked this on, on every episode you've done with us so far, is how did you come to direct Return to Tomorrow? Well, earlier when they, when they had booked me to do Obsession, they had booked me for two shows. This was after Metamorphosis. They booked mm. me for two more. One was Britain Circuses and the, the other was this date, and of course, when I got to here, it was Return to Tomorrow. In between was that extra one that they threw in when they they got the pickup for two more shows. So when when you came back, where was, I guess, Star Trek as a whole when you came back to, to do Return to Tomorrow? Well, it was near the end of the season. There, It was the fifth show after I did Obsession, so there was a longer period in there. And uh, I must say, when I came back and on this show, I did miss Gene Kuhn. Although I'm in doing some research for this, I hadn't expected, but I'm not surprised. He had a big hand in creating this show, but he wasn't there to, for the final. Well, you know, the way that season one, uh, season two, uh, you know, it doesn't it doesn't sort of end with the same level of quality that it started out with, but it still ends pretty decent. And, you know, uh, last week we were doing the episode by any other name, you know, which is an episode that we really liked a lot. A lot of people really liked it. I was surprised by the the engagement we got when we posted this about how many people were like, oh, yeah, that's a great episode. And Gene Kuhn had a big hand in that as well. So many of the screenplays that were produced as latter second season episodes were rewritten at one point by Gene Kuhn and, and his touch is on all of these episodes, including this one, but the teleplay was written by John T. Dugan, but he is credited as John 
Kingsbridge, his pseudonym. And I'll get to that reason why in a moment. But John T. Dugan had written for other classic television shows like Bonanza, Mission Impossible, Adam 12, which I loved when I was a kid, Kung Fu, Little House on the Prairie. And he submitted his story outline in early May of 1967. And then Gene Kuhn did a revised outline on May 9th. And then Dugan wrote a second draft teleplay on October 11th. But then Gene Roddenberry came in and did a complete rewrite of this episode in early November of 1967. And that rewrite is the reason why John Dugan took his name off and put his pseudonym John Kingsbridge on. And it really, gentlemen, it, it came down to one particular plot point that I will say what it is when we get to that point deep into this episode. But regardless of some of the behind the scenes drama with the writing, it was actually nominated for a Writers Guild of America Award for Best Written Dramatic Episode for 1968. It was also the episode that Roddenberry submitted <laughs> to the Writers Guild. <laughs> you, you both know how that goes. But the episode aired on February 9th, 1968. It was the 49th episode to air, but it was actually the 52nd episode to film, which, Ralph, big kudos to you for filming this episode under schedule in five and a half days. The schedule by this point mandated by Paramount is that no episode is to go over six days. And it was filmed in those five and a half days between November 20th and November 28th, 1967. And again, Ralph, kudos to you for bringing the episode also under budget. <laughs> uh, the total cost for Return to Tomorrow came in at $175,586, which was about $7,000 under budget. And the score was composed, once again, doing an episode with Ralph Sinetsky, George Dunning composed his second score for Star Trek. It was almost complete. They used some incidental mu music, but most of it was newly recorded by George Dunning, who just did, uh, I love his score for Metamorphosis. His score for Metamorphosis is just a beautiful, beautiful score. And I think this episode too, benefits from George Dunning's score. What did you think of his score, Ralph? I think it's wonderful. It's melodic and it's romantic. And it, it his score doesn't get in the way of the dialogue. It backs the dialogue. Absolutely. Steve, what do you think of the score for this episode? It's great. And in, the, in particular, there are a few moments where it really, really works. And of course, we'll get to those. Absolutely. So the score was recorded on December 29th, 1967, the same day that George Dunning also composed the partial score for the next episode uh, produced in the second season, which was Patterns of Force. I would say uh, that <laughs> George Dunning's score for Return to Tomorrow is much better than the partial score that he did for Patterns of Force. But uh, uh, I, I've always liked this episode, and the score is a, is a big reason why. Um, would you like to hear some of the things going on in the world when this was filmed? Certainly. <laughs> On November 20th at 11.04 and 15 seconds p.m., the U.S. population hit 200 million. And what is it now? I'm curious. I think it's about 340. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> it's almost doubled. 
Um, well, we talked a lot about Vietnam in our, our episode last week. And as, as I mentioned, the U.S. is trying to put forth an optimistic view of the war. And on November 21st, General Westmoreland declares that they have reached a turning point. He said that in 1965, the enemy was winning, but today he is certainly losing. And that was not really true. Hmm. Um, also on the 21st, uh, Lyndon Johnson passed, uh, signed the Air Quality Act. And this is the first time the federal government took charge and said, we have the right as a country to control the quality of the air. On November 22nd, the UN Security Council passed a resolution aimed at guiding peaceful negotiations between the Arab states and Israel. And basically the deal was that they put forth was if Israel gives back all the territories they won in the six day war, which is something we talked about. And the, the Arab nations would recognize the state of Israel. Israel said, absolutely. We will tentatively agree to do that. And Syria said, no way, never going to happen. And of course there's no peace treaty. Yeah. Uh, November 24th, and this one just relates more to where I grew up, which is that the plans to build a second deck on the Golden Gate Bridge were permanently rejected. And one of the main reasons it was rejected was the county that I grew up in, which is Marin County, which is the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge, said, we don't want all those people coming into Marin County. Keep them out. <laughs> um, on November 27th, Charles de Gaulle again rejected said he would veto the UK's joining of the European Economic Community, which is sort of the predecessor of the European Union. And it's just ironic that the UK has now left the European Union today. Um, on the same day, on November 27th, Scott, it's one of your events. Can you tell us what happened, perhaps? On November 27th, 1967? Yes. Uh, I'm going to say it has something to do with the Beatles. You are correct. Okay, wait, November 27th, 1967. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what could this be? Uh, it's gotta be something to do with Magical Mystery Tour. That's what I have is that that was the release date for Magical Mystery Tour. Oh my Very gosh. well done, sir. <laughs> oh my gosh. My faith Not in bad. you continues, yes. <laughs> the other thing that happens the same day is the Joint Chiefs again discuss plans to not have a ceasefire during the holidays and Tet. And of course they did end up having a ceasefire and that led to the Tet Offensive. Mm -hmm. And on November 28th, the confirmation of the first pulsar discovered in the universe was made. And that was uh, discovered by the Starship Enterprise. No. Yes, it was. <laughs> uh, and that is what was going on in the world. Shall we, shall we get into the show? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to ask Ralph real fast, when, when, you, um, when you did Metamorphosis, uh, George Takei was there. And now he was, this was his first episode and he missed like 10 episodes because he was filming the Green Berets with John Wayne. So, so did, did you, did, did he say anything like, oh my God, it's so good to be back. It was, oh, but that was when he came back. Yeah. He came oh, back oh, for, for I, this episode. I don't think, no, I, I don't think I even knew until years later that he had been gone. Wow. <laughs> um, I have to say, it's so funny watching this the way we've been doing it and studying it so deeply, because this time I had a huge reaction to seeing Sulu again. I was so excited because I had missed him so much and I'd never really had that reaction before because I never watched the show the way we've been watching it now. 
That's a really good point. You know, when I was rewatching this episode, and and again, it had been it had been some time since I rewatched Return to Tomorrow. So so when the episode begins and the teaser begins, and you know you see the Enterprise flying by, the first person you see on that bridge is Sulu. And I I literally when I was watching it, guys, I said, "Look who's back!" Yep. <laughs> you know. So this is his first episode back he missed like 10 episodes the last one he had done uh last time we saw him was on the bridge of the enterprise in i mud he didn't even get to beam down to join in on the fun in i mud so he's back it's not a it's not a big role for for george decay in this episode but he's back and Chekhov is not there and we hear that we're following some mysterious signal someone or something is attempting to attract our attention someone or something has succeeded so, you know, Ralph, when you when you came back and, and you know got back working with the with the with the cast again, was it sort of business as usual? Uh, how was the cast working with you this time? They were working the same, but my remembrance and my feelings at the time were that just the pressure that had been brought by the sale and the, the new edicts, there was a difference. And I mean, now, now because of what we're learning, what I'm learning on doing these deep dives, they also, at the time of Bread and Circuses and the show after that, they had to be aware that the show was on the verge of being canceled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they had, they had gone through that and then they'd been picked up for a couple, but only for a couple so that there was still, is are we going to be canceled? Uh this was not that much longer after that, and I'm sure that that affected them. Nothing was ever said; it was there. Sure, sure, and just, you know, yeah, that's in that's in doing doing the show this time and for the first time, it wasn't fun. Wow, oh. mm-hmm. it just wasn't fun. Nothing was said. I mean, we all worked; everybody worked as we had before, but it it was different. It wasn't fun to do it. It, it was doing it because you wanted to do it but it wasn't fun well 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 i mean listen your your point about the pressure of the oh. uh, of them constantly wondering if they're going to get canceled you know at the end of the initial 13 episode order uh you know then they got picked up for a few more and okay. that Right. Yeah, exactly. And then like, oh, then they, you know, went, okay, you know, we got picked up for the rest of the second season. But then even with the pickup of the rest of the second season, there's like, are we going to get a third season? Are we going to get picked up for the uh, another season? Unbelievable. That's a lot of pressure for sure. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, that was on them. That, that wasn't on me because, you know, I, I was just a, a visitor. <laughs> but but it, it was there. And without being said, it was there. Absolutely. We are hundreds of light years past where any Earth ship has ever explored. What's interesting about that is that when you hear them say that there were, were hundreds of light years beyond where any anyone's ever explored, see, I'm like, okay, finally, an episode where they literally are out where no one has gone before, and they're exploring a strange new world. And you know they they really you know if you look back on the on the series and all of the shows for that matter you know they really were like responding to a distress call or or they were going to a starbase or whatever and for them to actually be out that far exploring doing their mission uh, was really really cool and the planet the planet that they're at it's never mentioned on the screen but it is mentioned in the teleplay the planet is called Arit. A R R E T, 
which spelled backwards is Terra. 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 Oh, yeah. that is very cool. <laughs> Class M planet, Captain. Close to Earth conditions. With two very important exceptions. It is much older than Earth, and about a half million years ago, its atmosphere was totally ripped away by some sort of cataclysm. The planet has evidently been dead since then. And just as we're saying that our sensors detect no life, a big, booming voice comes across and says, All your questions will be answered in time, Captain Kirk. And that is when you first hear the new score by George Dunning. And between the echo, the reverb in this, this godlike voice and the music score, when I was re-watching it and talking to you both now about it, I got the chills a little bit. It's such an effective, like, whoa, what was that moment? And it's 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 such a great moment for a teaser. And the uh, voice that you hear, he identify it, you know, identifies itself as Sargon. And it, you can just tell by the booming of the voice. And you know whose voice that was? James Doohan. James Dewan provided the voice for Sargon. I knew that. And yeah, of course you knew that. <laughs> well, no, not necessarily. <laughs> well, that was my, actually, that was my question. So I assume that uh, he was not on the set doing the voice that you had a script supervisor or something. Oh, like that. no, no, that, that, that was yeah. all done afterward. Who did do the voice for like the... Uh... Well, you know, I've, I've been thinking about that and I, probably the script supervisor. Because Usually need, script supervisor we, will do all we, the we needed it. We needed it for the time for the cutting, he didn't do uh, this, that he did not do that until the show had been completed because he based he based his reading on what Shatner had done. Mm-hmm. And I think I read someplace where he said he found it kind of difficult. Yes, hmm. yeah, that's, that's absolutely, yeah, I read the same thing. And what's interesting is that when you hear this voice, you know, he identifies himself as Sargon and the concern like, like it's Kirk is a little freaked out by this, you know, he, this guy's been through everything at this point. And, and even he's thrown by the, the surprise of this voice, Steve, what do you, what do you, what do you think of this teaser? Well, I really like one of the details, which is that he looks over to Hora and goes, are your hailing frequencies open? Like, is this coming over the radio? And I think the fact that it's coming from nowhere and it's like, he knows your name, dude. I mean, all of that stuff makes it makes it much more fun. And I, in particular, because thematically this uh, resonates with the rest of the episode, is Sargon says, Please assume a standard orbit about our planet, Captain. Is that a request or a demand? <laughs> and that's key to really the whole episode. The choice is yours. I read what is in your mind. Words are unnecessary. Ralph, I, I, I wonder if you remember like the, uh, a choice that was made during the close-up of Shatner when he says, The planet is dead. There's no possibility of life there as we understand life. And I am as dead as my planet. The camera is a little below. You're, you're, the camera is actually looking up to Shatner instead of right on to Shatner. And I was wondering if there was a, 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 a conscious decision on that part or, or it just was what it was. I, I don't remember. There, there, there may have been. I just don't remember. But if it, but, but if it works, I'll take credit. <laughs> yeah, it does work. It does work because it's, it's a different angle, and it's like, I, I, I don't know. There's something about the shot which it just, it's just showing a vulnerability 
on even Kirk's side that he's net once again after a half dozen episodes at least that he is clearly uh, you know uh, witnessing experiencing encountering uh, an alien race that is far more powerful than they are and that could have been jerry sure jerry yeah in other words i wanted the close-up and jerry could have just dropped the camera because that would give more of the inner feeling of kirk that was jerry and jerry finnerman was this was his first episode back because he missed uh, by any other name, he was uh, he was not feeling well, so someone I, else came I, in. I, I didn't know that until until last week when when uh, when you related that. <laughs> All I can say is I'm delighted because <laughs> I would not have been happy to yeah. have done the show with without him. And the difference showed last week. Oh, and it definitely shows when he comes back in some of the scenes, especially in the briefing room. Oh yes, yes, yes. Does that frighten you, James Kirk? Or if it does, if you let what is left of me perish, then all of you, my children, all of mankind must perish too. And that is the end of the teaser. And that line makes no sense. It has nothing to do. There is nothing that says that mankind's going to perish if they let Sargon perish. That doesn't, it's a, it's a, like, let's throw a scary thing at the end of the teaser to create a cliffhanger, but it doesn't actually have anything to do with anything. Right. And when we get to the end, to the end of our story, see, I think that maybe if they had used that, and I will tell you what I'm thinking about it now, that it maybe has more meaning mm. than. Well, that's a good, that's a good uh, uh, great observation on both your parts. Cause I, I never, you know, sort of paid attention to that line. I was, I was just thinking like when, when Sargon says, does that frighten you, James Kirk? It's almost like he's challenging him. And of course, Captain Kirk is up for, for a challenge. <laughs> yeah, this, this is talking a little bit ahead of our time, but ahead of the story. But I've always had trouble with the ending that I didn't feel the show resolved itself. And because of getting ready for this deep dive, uh, I'm, I've found out that maybe there is a different way to have ended it and it would have used this line. Well, we'll definitely get to that. (laughs) You've you've definitely piqued my curiosity, Ralph. Um, Okay. Well, I'm leaving. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that, that would truly be a teaser. You would definitely have teased us. The title of the episode, we see the title of the episode is return to tomorrow. And I always wondered where that title came from. And apparently in an earlier script, uh, a, a scene that was, uh, you know, dialogue that was dropped between Hennick and Thalesa. Uh, so Hennick, as we will soon see, is, uh, you know, ladies man, you know, he's uh, hitting on Thalesa and uh, he's kissing her in a very aggressive way. And she says to him, a return to tomorrow that might have been. And then Hennick replies and will be. Anyway, that line was dropped. Since exploration and contact with alien intelligence is our primary mission, I've decided to risk the potential dangers and resume contact. Listening to him say that, it reminded me a little bit of the Corbomite maneuver when they encounter the boy in space and then they destroy it and it almost destroys them in the process. You know, Kirk makes a decision. Do we do we keep going forward or do we turn back? And he he moves forward. In this case, you know, they're clearly faced with a very powerful alien presence. 
and he moves forward and he addresses and, and he makes that point. Absolutely. And I think thematically, this is a return to the Corbinite maneuver. It's a, kind of a return to the basics of what the enterprise is about, you know? Absolutely. I totally agree with you. Please come to us. Rescue us from oblivion. Coming from deep under the planet's surface, Captain. Under at least 100 miles of solid rock. We I can... will make it possible for your transporter to beam you that deep beneath the surface. Have no fear. And I love that Kirk is like about to say we can't. He doesn't even finish his sentence, yeah. and Sargon finishes his sentence. So, so Sargon is like reading his mind, which is another uh, deep power. And he asks for McCoy to meet him in the transporter room. And Spock clearly wants to go on this mission. And I would like to have my science officer with me on something as unusual as this, but it is full of unknowns, and we can't risk both of us being off the ship. And then the lights go down, the power is off, and I love Shatner's. On the other hand, perhaps the Sargon would like you to come with us. Everything comes back on. I, it's a it's a really good moment. Yes. Will you transport down with us, Mr. Spock? Evidently, Captain. <laughs> and he gives Sulu the con, which we haven't had happen in a really long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're down in the transporter room, and Scotty is not comfortable with this situation. I don't like it, sir. The transporter coordinates preset by a, an alien of some sort. You could materialize inside solid rock. Just what McCoy wants to hear. Yeah, and he already doesn't like the transporter, and now you're gonna uh, you're gonna gamble that finicky thing on a hundred miles of solid rock. <laughs> and I love Shatter's remark reply when McCoy looks at him to, to say, is this true? And before he says anything, that look on his face, he shakes his head and nods. And then he says, yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. Wonderful reaction. Well, and I like his reasoning, which is that basically he's pretty sure Sargon could destroy the ship anytime he wants. Right. So there's no reason not to trust him in this moment. And then a device that I've always loved, you hear a voice before you see the person. They are it. Everyone turns around, and there, standing there, is Dr. Anne Mulhall, played by Diana Muldaur. And this is the first of many appearances in yeah. Star Trek, and not just the original series, because as we talked about, she played Dr. Miranda Jones in season three's beautiful episode, Is There in Truth No Beauty, directed by our guest of honor today. She also played Dr. Catherine Pulaski in the entire second season of Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, a, a, a season that was produced during a writer's strike. But uh, I always thought that that Diana Muldaur did a great job as Pulaski. She's all, I feel like she's forgotten, but I thought she did a great job. But more importantly, for Diana Muldaur, she is a two-time Emmy nominee for her performance as Rosalind Chase on L.A. Law. And her character met a very shocking death when she fell down uh, an elevator hatch. The door was open, but the elevator was not there. And I'll never forget when I saw that for the first time. I used to watch L.A. Law all the time. Uh, but she was also on TV's Dr. Kildare, Hawaii Five O. Mannix, McLeod, Quincy M.E., and she was a voice for Batman, the animated series. And it's also worth noting, gentlemen, that 
as a lieutenant commander, Anne Mohall, she is the highest ranking female officer on the original series of Star Trek. And it was Dorothy Fontana's idea to turn Mohall. Originally, she was going to be a yeoman. And she said, let's punch her up. So they made her an astrobiologist. So here's my question for you, Ralph. Instead of maybe having a new actress come in for this episode, was there ever talk that maybe, hmm, maybe we should have Uhura be the third person? No. That's too bad. That would have been great. And let me tell you that earlier, and I'm not sure how much earlier, I had seen Diana in a stage production at UCLA. It was not a college production. That was when John Hausman was using their second, not, not their main theater, but the second the second one. It was the, the an, an older one. And he was doing theater productions out there. And eventually that company moved to the trio of theaters when they had the theater complex in downtown LA. I had seen her there. And because of that, cast her in I Spy. Oh. oh. And then uh, in the time between Metamorphosis and Bread and Circuses, I cast her in Judd for the Defense. Hmm. And so when we got to this one, I asked for her and got her. Oh, excellent. Wow. That's great. That's awesome. <laughs> I like her a lot. And it's it's funny. I, with, in terms of Next Generation, I'll just say real quickly, I've heard a lot of criticism of the character of Polanski. And I think that is so... I think she's gotten such a bad rap for it because I don't think there's a lot of bad scripts, but I don't think she's bad. No, I I agree. I think she's good. I think she didn't always have the best material. Um, um, But anyway, uh, (laughs) but this is another person who is what's weird about it. Here's this Lieutenant commander on the enterprise that apparently Kirk doesn't know who she is, which is very surprising. Very surprising. I noticed that too. Well, I was ordered to report here for landing party duty. By whom? Strange, I'm not sure. Well, I'm not a liar, Captain. I did receive an order to report here for duty. <laughs> McCoy's still on the solid rock thing, which I love. It's like, hold on. <laughs> and, and I like the way you staged this, Ralph, of having him not go to the yes. transporter platform and being in the foreground there. My, um, are you joking? Yeah, and, that, and that's where Shatner has that great reaction. No, we're not. Let's go. <laughs> Suddenly, they're being down. Scotty has a reaction to it, and the security guys that are with them are not being down. Yeah, Scotty's reaction is because he was not the one operating the transporter controls. Sargon operated the controls, and it's awfully unusual that four out of the six people on that transporter platform beamed down, but at least the security guards did not die. <laughs> and we show up in some chamber and Kirk calls up to the Enterprise, which shouldn't work because of all the rock. And we find out that security guys are fine. And then a door opens. We hear kind of the main Star Trek theme. And there in the center of this room is a blinking orb. I've always referred to that what Steve has called the orbit as a big ping pong ball. Sure. <laughs> it does look like and, a big ping pong ball. I thought about it. I, I am, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not thrilled with that set. Welcome. I am Sargon. Would it harm you if I 
You may use your tricorder, Mr. Spock. Your readings will show energy, but no substance. But you once had a body of some type. A body much as yours, my children, although our minds were infinitely greater. And Kirk has a reaction to hearing that word, my children, and asks about it. And Sargon says, Because it is possible you are our descendants, Captain Kirk. Just as your own starships have now begun to explore that vastness. As you now leave your own seed on distant planets, so we left our seed behind us. Perhaps your own legends of an Adam and an Eve were two of our travelers. Okay, so a couple things here. That the numerous references by Sargon when he said refers to the landing party as my children. He refers to Kirk as my son. Those references came when Gene Roddenberry rewrote the script. So, so you know, Gene was trying to inject a, a spiritual aspect to this episode, and and that is where sort of the conflict began with John T. Dugan, who was a devout Catholic, and you know, Roddenberry, while trying to be spiritual, uh, is not a fan of organized or was not a fan of organized religion. So, in this final version that Roddenberry rewrote, he says, "Perhaps your own legend of an Adam and Eve." were two of our travelers. He says, perhaps, but in the earlier version that Dugan wrote, he said with no, no, perhaps no qualifier that in fact, Adam and Eve were two of our travelers. So he's saying, forget everything that you know, your people are descendants of ours. And Stan Robertson, who was the standards and practices person at NBC assigned to Star Trek basically said, ah, no, no way. That's sacrilegious. You got to take that out. And that's when Roddenberry, when he rewrote it, suggested it. He said, perhaps. So he left it in, but left it open. But what struck me this time, Steve, I really want to hear what you think of this, is if Sargon's people had branched out and left their seeds on other planets, could we have maybe seen some of these seeds, no, not not referencing space seed here, but in some of the episodes we've already seen, or episodes that we will see. So, first of all, I've always thought that I've always thought, oh, this is like an explanation for the parallel Earth things that we've seen. It, to- I've totally thought that. I want to go back to something you said, so make sure that I understand it correctly. The original writer who was Catholic and had conflicts with Gene Roddenberry about religion. He's the guy who didn't have the perhaps in there? Correct. Yes. He put it in his script that it was like Adam and Eve were two of our travelers. And then then he's the one destroying the religion. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He's the one cutting down, saying that, no, no, our legends are not true. And that's actually not even the reason why he took his name off the the screenplay and used a pseudonym. That's coming later. Um, Also, the other thing, it seems seems now having done this with you a bunch – Gene Roddenberry is kind of obsessed with trying to tell God stories. Absolutely. You know, whether it's the God problem or the God, whatever, you know, like for a long time. And I think he never gets there. I don't think he ever quite does what I think he's trying to do. When, you know, in the, in the seventies, when Star Trek was moving closer to being, being a film, one of the stories that Roddenberry wanted was for them to find God. The title, the, tel- the title of that uh, screenplay was even called The God Thing. That's what and, it was. I was trying to remember. Yeah, yeah, The God Thing. And then finally in Star Trek V, they do find God, and he's a, he's an old guy who 
could shoot lasers out of his eyes in Star Trek V. Can I, can I get say something in here? Yep. Because in getting ready for this, I went back to the Cushman book, and uh, most of the interplay between producer and writer was Gene Kuhn and Dukin, and there was a problem there. And there's a long thing about a long letter that Kuhn finally wrote to Dugan, kind of criticizing him for not being co cooperative and making changes and being a little sarcastic. And then Dugan responded to that. And that was when, according to Mark Cushman, Gene Kuhn wrote a memo to Gene Roddenberry. And at the end of it, he said, I quit. Right, that's right. The frustration of not being able to get any cooperation with yeah, Ruben. That's right. He wrote, I, by the way, I quit. <laughs> yeah. um, and wow. that was close. To, yeah. I mean, you know, clearly by this point, Coombe was, you know, completely, yeah. you know, burned out from burning the candle at both ends and also frustrated at all the headbutting with certainly yeah. Roddenberry and some of the writers. And yeah, uh, and, and, you know, even by his own admission, uh, those memos, uh, you know, the, the correspondence with Dugan, he, he even said that he was a sensitive, uh, you know, sensitive guy, but uh, I guess he didn't take the criticism too well, but yeah. even that, even that is not the reason why he took his name off. And, and, oh, no, and Steve, I'll be very curious to hear, especially your take on, on the ultimate reason that did force him to root through well, his I, name. I, I can tell you this right now that one of the final title pages uh, that I got and that is on my script to today. It is Return to Tomorrow by Gene Roddenberry. Wow. Wow. By Gene Roddenberry. That's and, very interesting. That's that very was, telling. And I understand that's when King when Dugan took his you know, took the pseudonym. And then of course the problem became when he was nominated. And of course his name was out on, on the right. script. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And I think actually this moment we're talking about, this Adam and Eve moment, is a perfect example of muddled writing because we, we first have this moment where they say, hey, our, maybe our descendants are Adam and Eve. And then you have Dr. Mulhall say, no, no, we know that we evolved independently, which makes you kind of go, well, why say the Adam and Eve thing in the first place? And then you kind of, it's almost like they kind of throw a bone to this idea by having Spock say, oh, maybe that explains some prehistory of Vulcans. It's a muddled idea. Yeah. And then even Sargon says, uh, you know, I don't even remember. It was so long ago. <laughs> and it's like, well, why did we have this in the first place? You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then and this is when we hear that their records were lost in the cataclysm. And they say a war, a struggle for such goals and the unleashing of such power that you could not comprehend. And Shatner immediately or Kirk immediately is like going, well, maybe you weren't so bright then. I mean, we got through our nuclear era. And, and Sargon says, and I do find this, I like this, I think this is interesting. And we survived our primitive nuclear era, my son. But there comes to all races an ultimate crisis, which you have yet to face. I don't understand. One day our minds became so powerful, we dared think of ourselves as gods. And with that line, with the, the inflection that, that James Dewan does with Sargon's voice. Like I still, you know, I'm watching the episode this time and I'm going like, I can't believe that's Jimmy doing. He sounds so different. He sounds great. He does a great job. And I, and I go to like, Oh, does this mean the Organians went through this kind of crisis and came out of it better 
than Sargon and his people, and maybe the Q kind of went through this crisis and came out of it in a different way. And what some about of the Trelane? Others, and Trelane. And so it's like, well, and Apollo, because Apollo, they said, we are gods. And they showed up at Earth maybe, you know, 500,000 years after Sargon and his people, if they were there, too. Wow. There are a lot more, there are a lot of powerful races in this galaxy yeah. and it, it kind of, it's humbling. <laughs> you know, e- even Kirk says it's, it's humbling to think that we're, we're not so powerful after all. And remember all of this that we're talking about, because that's going to affect what, I'm, what we'll be talking mm-hmm. about. Oh, wow. We we're built into a big thing here. <laughs> you said you wanted our help. What is it you wish? And there's a music sting and Kirk steps back. And the camera zooms in, and there's this big reaction, and then we hear a booming voice come from Kirk saying, I am Sargon. And that moment, I have to tell you, like when Shatner is standing frozen, and his head, head is tilted back, and his eyes are closed, and you hear the reverb in his voice, now it's not Jimmy Doohan, now it's actually Shatner's voice, and there was some talk early on, well, are we going to have the aliens' voices emanate from the actors after the transference? And they're like, you know what? Let's just have the actors use their own voices. It'll be a lot easier. It'll save a lot of time. But when Kirk, now as Sargon, says with those dramatic pauses that only Shatner can do, I am Sargon. And you know, with the with the music, with George Dunning's score really building behind behind Sargon, I think this is a perfect example of the point you made earlier, Ralph, about how the music really accentuates the moment instead of smothering it. Uh, I always liked Shatner in this scene, but Ralph, what what's your take on on Shatner in this moment? Shatner does not do in playing Sargon that Leonard does in playing. Kenak. And let me talk about Nimoy right now, because Nimoy, his whole body is different. His choice of what to do is different. There will be a scene where he is leaning against a wall with his arms crossed. You are seeing Kenak in Spock's body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bill's transference, he, is, he makes so much of the effort, the pain to become Sargon. Mm-hmm. It was a normal choice. It was a possible choice, but I don't think it was the right choice. He should have just become Sargon. Even as he walked, he walked with effort. And I think later you will see it's Thalatia who refers to how good it feels to be in a body. And I would like to have seen that. I would like to have seen Sargon there rather than an actor and in the performance that follows and in the relating of what he wants to happen he's intoning and he's playing to the last row and he should have been playing to the three people well what, let me ask you when you when you got to this part of the screenplay and you were got to this part in filming did you did you have discussions with especially well, there, there was not time right there was there no was time. not time that was number one i am not sure how well Bill will have take would have taken to that, mm, right? But but it didn't make any difference because I looked at it and I, I knew I was uncomfortable that it wasn't working. But if I had stopped, I would not have gotten that day's work done because I think we were in that chamber for for ten pages. 
there That's just right. wasn't time. Mm-hmm. Because we had this scene, we had the scene on the inner chamber with all of the ping pong balls. And then we had, before we came back out to finish this in, in, in the outer chamber. But it should have just been a regal, kingly presence bringing his message Mm. to these people yeah and it, was, and it was and it was a message it was not an oration that was just my feeling i couldn't agree more i think shatner goes too far particularly in this scene your description of him playing to the back row that's exactly what i see it seems like and i've seen these performances particularly in the theater where an actor wants to do this big physical thing and if it, it's it's all about him showing Yes. The big thing he's going through rather than just experiencing, oh, I'm in my I'm in a body again and just experiencing that. And in particular, I like what you said of of I don't think there's a lot of care the way that Nimoy does in terms of who is Sargon. Sargon is a great king, a great leader, a great philosopher, a really a truly good human. And Shatner isn't really playing that kind of person. Absolutely. That's a good point. No, that's very good points. And it's that, you know, this is the thing that Shatner does to me for me when he's going too far. I, I agree with you, Steve. As this transformation happens, McCoy's reaction is strong and he draws his phaser and points it at Kirk. Back to where you were, Sargon, or whatever you are. And if he refuses, Doctor, what do you propose to do with your phaser? That is still Jim's body. Okay, now now I've I've talked about this many times on Enterprise Incidents. I've talked about the bloopers. And there are a couple of famous bloopers from anyone who has seen the blooper reels over these decades, which have now been uh, repurposed so many times that it's almost uh, uh, impossible to watch them. But there's a moment during the blooper reel where, where the camera's on a close-up of Shatner and he walks up to Sargon, uh, he walks up to the, the receptacle, puts his hands on and he goes, have no fear. And then he starts saying, Sargon is here. And as he's saying that, he he starts cracking up because the the you know it, 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 the temptation was too hard to resist. <laughs> I you know, I don't remember that night. I'm not sure that I've seen it. The, the only blooper real scene that I've seen is the one in the jail. Oh, that's right, with Ted Cassidy, yeah. <laughs> he says, in the next room, there are other receptacles, the other two of us that have survived. You, Dr. Ann Mulhall, and you, Mr. Spock. We require your bodies also. We must have Captain Kirk. And you. So that we may live again. That brings us to the end of Act One. As the camera rises above Shatner and Kirk looks up. Do you remember... That scene, Ralph. I always believe that act endings on screen needed to be like act and act endings on a stage. It, it needed to be a, a curtain, not just oh, it's over. Right. right. Oh, that's a curtain. <laughs> so remember how at the end of the teaser, I said we had a line that made no sense. You know, because they say you're all going to die if you don't do this, which has nothing to do with the rest of the show. This one too. It's a. It's we've created him saying something scary. Which the moment that we come back in Act Two. He says, I didn't really mean that, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but we are in this other room. We see a whole bunch of vessels, most of them dark. When the struggle came, which devastated your planet, only the best minds were chosen to survive. Thalesa, 
My wife, as you may have guessed, Hannah, from the other side. The other side. I'm already thinking, like, why save the other side? <laughs> well, that's what's very interesting to me, and I wish we had a little bit more of Sargon and his reasoning and how this came about, because I think right. that's a very interesting thing. I wish that that scene had started with his coming in, moving right to her receptacle and putting his hand and doing that greeting of her there and then do the explaining. Totally agree. You're absolutely right. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course you're um, right. <laughs> and then one day my mind touched your vessel and brought you here. So you could steal our bodies from us. And this is where he s explains that that thing I said at the end of Act One, that really, that really I didn't really mean it that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to steal, to take them from you. No, no, my children, you misunderstand. We mean only that you should lend us your bodies for a short time. And destroy them, just as you're burning that one up now. Heartbeat 262, Spock, entire metabolic rate correspondingly high. And he starts to fall and says, it's time. It is time. And they go back to the orb and we switch back over. And again, you do a, a zoom uh, on Kirk. But I love, I love the, uh, or I, well, I don't know if I love it, but whenever the transference takes place, it's always more painful for Kirk than it is for Spock and Thalese, uh, or uh, rather Mohal. I mean, the, tr the first transference, you could argue like, well, you know, it, Kirk gets more used to it with each passing transfer. So he, 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 it's, it's less dramatic each time there's a transference. I just want to point out, this is the problem with having an actor who is taking too much control of the situation because last week in by any other name, we had them all freeze and Nimoy and um, D Kelly are frozen and Shatner is moving his eyes around. Right. And then in this week we have him doing these big pain reactions and the other actors doing something else. Mm -hmm. And what did we have a few weeks ago? We had a guy quit saying that the actors were getting too tough to deal with. And, you know, and obviously Shatner probably being the main one, you know, yeah. and take you out of this into something else for a while. About a decade later, I think it was 1976. I was at a party and met Anthony Hopkins and mm -hmm. he was, he was, in town, this was really at the beginning of his career. He was wow. in town to play Hopman in the Lindbergh story. Mm. He was telling me, he said that he had been on the stage a few, a few days watching before he himself was going to start performing. And he, he was filled with admiration for American actors that they could come on do a brief rehearsal, and then give a full performance. And he was a little critical about the things that he had been taught as a classically trained actor. And Anthony Hopkins, I think, went back to New York and to the studio. And to this day, when he talks about his acting, he does say, I don't do anything. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I, I can't remember the exact quotes, but I know when he did Lion and Winter that he got a lot from Catherine Hepburn. Absolutely. That she was all over him and what he was doing as a film actor, and he learned uh, a lot. Well, no, she, she, I, I don't think she criticized him as much. She just said, just say the lines. Mm. Just yeah. say the lines, mm. which, is, which is really the essence of it. 
Yep. No, he, he says he doesn't do any preparation. I don't quite believe that. When he did Silence of the Lambs, the fact that he never blinked. Oh, oh I never noticed that. Oh, uh, no. He never blinked. And I'm sure that that was just a decision. And then once he accepted it, he didn't think about it anymore. We, we did Silence, uh, Anthony Hopkins, uh, one of the great actors of all time. We did Silence of the Lambs on the Cinephiles. And I know that the fact that we first see him standing in the center of the room in that first shot as we come in on that tracking oh, shot, yes. Yes. that's his idea. That's that's yes. not from Jonathan Demme. That's yes. chilling when you yes. see him just standing yes. there waiting for Clarice like that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, let me throw one more thing in it. That yeah. I worked with jo Jodie Foster when mm. she was six years old. Ah, oh, Jodie Foster. <laughs> Oh, we can go on now. <laughs> um, well, that I think that was a totally worth it digression. When Sargon and I exchanged as we passed each other, for an instant we were one. I know him now. I know what he is and what he wants. And I don't fear him. And everyone has a big reaction to this. Yeah, like, like, you're out dude, of your mind. <laughs> yeah. The guy stole your body. Like, how do we know? And I think this is a great question. How do we know that Sargon hasn't messed with his head? I understand, my son. Go to your vessel. All who are involved must agree to this. After all these centuries, we can wait a few more hours. And what if we should decide against you? Then you may go as freely as you came. And we cut to the briefing room. And, and one it's of a dramatic cut. Yeah. It's a yes. dramatic cut. You're in the middle of a conversation already and happening. We cut to Scott. Scotty, yep. yeah, yeah, and I, I've, I, we, Steve, we talked about this many times, like, like, uh, you know, cutting to a scene and you're, it's, it's in progress, yep. and, and this is a great effect because you just, you just see Scotty reacting right. to whatever they just talked about. You don't know what they talked about, but Scotty's reaction uh, says it all. He can't believe his ears or Spock's ears. Um, I can't, and, I can't tell you. Sorry, I can't tell you how many scripts I've written where I didn't realize this, this particular moment is what I was stealing from. You're going to what? As the first line of the scene. I've done that, a version of that so many times in so many scripts, starting a scene with some kind of line like that. Wow. And, and Scotty's like, this is completely nuts. And I love that Kirk says, A simple transference. Their minds and ours. Quite simple. Happens every day. Well, what I, what I notice about watching this episode again is the work of Mr. Jerry Finnerman is just on proud display the way he lit that that briefing room, you know, with the with the greens, kind of like the way he did uh, in the briefing room scene in Obsession with well, the yes, and it, it's the same table, but it, it looks different here because the people are right around it, and the other they were just on two sides of it. And I love again, Captain Kirk is a leader, a model of leadership. Because he could just give his orders and say, this is what we're going to do. But he, as a good leader, knows that he needs buy-in from all of his crew members. And one of the things I thought of that makes this more, even more important, you know, one of the big reasons why he needs everybody on board, not just him and Spock and the other doctor, is he's not going to be here. He's going to be gone. He won't be able to give any orders. The senior person actually is going to be Scotty. And McCoy is the, you know, like that's who's going to be running the enterprise because he won't be there. So he absolutely has to get them on board with this decision. Right. He, Spock won't be there either. No, nope, right. there's no Spock. That's a great point. It all seems rather indecent to me. I'm not so certain of that, Doctor. It is scientifically fascinating. I think that quiet, serene, yeah. calm way that she says it when she says, I'm a scientist. 
Yeah, she's she's great. Like, I mean, you've got this impassioned back and forth going on between uh, Kirk and McCoy and, and Kirk and Scotty. And then uh, in, in the middle of that conversation, you hear a voice of reason by coming from Mulhall. Of mature reason. Yeah. Mature. Right. She's calm. You're absolutely right. She's not, you know, saying that, like, you know, trying to jump in and, you know, the talking loudly. She's like very, very zen about it. I also think in, in a weird way, she feels like part of the crew, you know, like she, she she feels very confident in that position. With their knowledge, mankind could leap ahead 10,000 years. Bones, they'll show us medical advances, miracles you never dreamed possible. Scotty, engineering advances, vessels this size with engines the size of walnuts. And, and Scotty's like, ha, you're joking, but I guess it wouldn't hurt to look at a diagram. Because <laughs> <laughs> Kirk knows how to hook people. And McCoy, though, is, you know, making a very solid argument. He says they're giants and we're insects beside them. They could destroy us without meaning to. And all he wants is the body of our captain and our second in command, too. And they say, well, it's just because they selected the most compatible bodies. And Kirk turns to Bones, who is the, the holdout. He is the juror number seven in the 12 Angry Men scene. Excellent. Yep. Bones. You could stop all this by saying no. That's why I called you all here together. We'll all be deeply involved. It must be unanimous. Well, then I will still want one question answered to my satisfaction. He slams his fist down on the, on the table. Why? Not a list of possible miracles, but a simple, basic, understandable why that overrides all danger. So I want to first point out that, again, we said it over and over again, McCoy's argument is ap- absolutely makes sense and should be made. It is a it is a right, correct argument. There is a totally valid point here. And let's not kid ourselves that there is no potential danger in this. And here it begins. Here it begins. The great speech. So, Ralph, what do you remember about the filming of this scene, of this speech, and specifically? How many times did you have to get to film it? Because again, I know that the, the, the schedule was under the gun. I remember that day. It was not the first day. And the days before, I had gotten the day's work in each day. And I was very concerned by this time of the six-day schedule. And I had the day in this chamber, you know, down in the rock. I had it mapped out. You know, I thought, well, I, I can get through it. And we got to this speech. And again, I, and I'm not blaming Bill on, about, on this because it was a tremendous, he had a lot of words, a tremendous load from day to day with this added pressure. And uh, he kept stumbling. I mean, I can't remember how many times. Mm. I, I don't know whether, well, I guess we just would have to go back and start it over in order to get it. And I remember that, I was concerned that it was pushing to the place where I could end up not getting the day's work done. But we did get it done. But beyond that, I have a different interpretation of the way the speech should be done. I would like it to have been done more like he did the mini speech in Metamorphosis, not selling, but telling and his own passion and the rapture of this idea of being caught up in that and their being impressed and catching his emotional thing rather than 
that was getting it through the heart, not through the ears. That's a great point. I remember when we were talking about that moment in Metamorphosis, when Zephyr Cochran says to him, Kirk, he says, what's it like out there? And, and you're right. Shatner was brilliant in metamorphosis. Yes. Yes, Kirk, he's standing there with his arms behind his, his hands behind his back. And talking about how he's feeling yep. rather than talking to sell. It works this way, but it worked, I think, as effectively and probably more effectively the other way. So I have something sort of odd to say, which is I, I feel like, Ralph, that my aesthetic and yours are pretty close, because if I had been the director, I would have said the same thing. Let's play that just straightforward. This is speaking from the heart. That is what I would want. And I think I would have been wrong. And the reason I think that is because this is one of the great speeches. It is. So, I, I have remembered this speech all my life. And but most it, Star it, Trek it, fans have, too. But it would be a great it would be a great speech if it's delivered. I, I I agree with you, and yet it, this is one where it's like I can't argue with success. You know what I mean? Like it is. This is an iconic moment of Star Trek, and I I don't know. It, it would have been great. That's how I would have directed it too. But it's so good as it is. I know. Yeah. But it's, it's but it's it's the words. And I'll tell you something. When you cut to the four people afterward for their response, and there was a quiet. They are responding to it as if he had done it the other way. Mm. That's a great point, too. That's a great point, too. But just the way that, that Shatner does deliver the speech yeah. and the way the camera zooms in really slow. A very slow zoom. Very slow zoom. It's that, such that, a... That, that helps. And the music. Again, I, I've had comments left on my website about this. Uh, uh, some of them criticized the words in blaming Roddenberry for just being too talky and uh, and I think I had one who referred to the, the loud music almost it's almost my Max Steiner kind of music yeah it's big um well let's let's get into this actual speech he says they used to say a man could fly he'd have wings but he did fly he discovered he had to do you wish that the first Apollo mission hadn't reached the moon or that we hadn't gone on to Mars and then to the nearest star I just want to point out that this is, you know, this is mid-60s. We're right in the middle of the space program. We're right as this this huge um, test pilots that all are people that became the astronauts and that the risk level of test pilots, it was something like one in three died. Well, also by this point when this episode was filmed, uh, the Apollo on fire had already happened. Right. And Apollo 7 had not yet launched. And so Two years before landing on the moon. Two years before landing on the moon. So so basically the Apollo program was still grounded while they were investigating the fire and also reconfiguring the command module, which is where the fire happened. But Kirk still had the the wherewithal and the, the writer, you know, Roddenberry, who wrote who wrote the risk is our business speech. That was definitely Roddenberry. He still, you know, made sure to say Apollo's gonna go to the moon, you know, even though we were not even flying yet. But I think this is so important because it's important that this we just had that fire because that's the risk. We are going to die. People mm -hmm. are going to die doing this. That's what it takes to get to the moon. It's not safe out there. That's like saying you wish that you still operated with scalpels and sewed your patients up with catgut like your great, 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 great grandfather used to. I'm in command. I could order this. But I'm not. 
And, and again, I know I said, you know, this idea of steel man arguments, which is like you should state the other side's argument really well. And that's what he does. Dr. McCoy is right in pointing out the enormous danger potential in any contact with life and intelligence as fantastically advanced as this. But I must point out that the possibilities, the potential for knowledge and advancement is equally great. So he's put forth, this is the situation we're in, and then says, Risk. Risk is our business. That's what the starship is all about. That's why we're aboard her. And we have the close-ups of everyone listening. You may dissent without prejudice. Do I hear a negative vote? Here's what I had to say about the speech is that it's done in parts, even though it's all one take. And I, I completely understand, Ralph, the way you would have preferred to have it done. But at the same time, what makes the speech so iconic and unforgettable and successful is not only the impassioned delivery, but with each part of that, of that speech, he kind of shifts the tone of that speech on a dime. From one moment to the other, you, you can hear that there's a different inflection in his speech. And then there's that final inflection, you know, you make dissent without prejudice. Like you, you hear the different beats throughout this one speech and it's all done in one take. I think that's pretty impressive. I just want to point out why personally this speech is important to me. And, and by the way, I speak, Kirk has a lot of great speeches. I think there's a very strong argument that this is the greatest speech of Star Trek. And here's how it personally affected me, which is that I've made two Great White Shark documentaries. And in the second one, which is called Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear, which is available on Amazon Prime for anyone who wants to watch it. Um, <laughs> the whole idea of the, the, epi- of the movie is that our, our image, our understanding of the shark is molded by how scared we are of sharks. And that if we can move outside of the cage and not observe the shark through the bars of the cage, we can learn new things about it. And so in that documentary, there are more people riding on the back dorsal fins of great white sharks than you've ever seen in a movie. And I realized in the midst of making it, in particular writing the narration, that the words that kept going through my head are risk is our business is that in order to understand the world that we live in, sometimes you have to take risks. And that is one of the main themes of this film that I made. I have to, have to say, this is made, starting to sound like I'm objecting to it, and I'm not. Mm-hmm, I just mm-hmm. would have preferred to have seen the Kirk who talked to the companion. Mm-hmm. The companion, yeah. Do yeah, well, the speech rather than this Kirk. Well, the, the the scenes where Kirk tries to reason with the companion, that's uh I think that that episode alone is is represents Shatner's finest hour. Yeah. Uh but yeah, I mean Steve, I'm with you in terms of uh, the risk is our business uh, having well, such a such a deep impact on me over oh. these decades. Uh I, but also uh we're not going to kill today speech from that's one of the other uh, great ones. Taste of Armageddon is is another great one. And of course, you know, oh, when he it is but I, I, as I and I'm not objecting to the speech. No, no, I'm, I know. I'm not, I'm, I'm not even objecting to the delivery. I'm just saying I think the delivery would be I think it would be even more effective if the other Kirk had said it. 
Right. Absolutely. Right. No, we absolutely uh, we totally understand. Well, okay. We totally agree with that. Yes. Okay. Um, he and, you know, and I love all the reaction shots are so great as we go around yeah. the room. Oh, absolutely. They're fantastic. And we cut to sick bay and the orbs are there. And McCoy is giving Chapel a bit of a briefing on what's about to happen. And they tell Sargon they're ready, and there's music, and we have, which we haven't mentioned before, the lighting change, this kind of purple light as, uh, as this transference happens, and Sargon opens his eyes. The transference is complete. I love the lighting. I mean, Jerry Finner must have, must have had a great time with this episode and with the scene in particular. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I have read in the Cushman book, and I didn't know this, that both Mark Daniels and Joe Pevney uh, restricted. I, 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 I don't know how they could do it or you know, if it really happened, but I just loved what he did. And I mean, we were, as we talked about earlier, we didn't have to talk about it. We were just working together as a team. Yeah, I, th- I mean, clearly you guys worked really, really well together. And, and between Obsession and now this, and certainly, I mean, the cinematography and metamorphosis, you know, on the planet with the purple sky and everything and, and the cloud. And it, it, it's really one of the best looking episodes of the series. Yeah. And then we get, which is just watching it this time in particular, is some of my favorite, might be my favorite part of the episode, is Nimoy sits up as Henock. And he says, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love just his smile, just from his, the way his body posture is, his smile. He is a different person. It's just yes. no question. And I love that the first person he sees is Chapel. Oh, you are a lovely female. A pleasant sight to wake up to after half a million years. And her and demure it. sort of shy <laughs> response to that is so great. Thank you. You're welcome. Then Thalesa wakes up. And has that same reaction that Sargon have of breathing again, of having a body again. And she turns over to Spock and says, Sargon. We hear Kirk say, Here, in this body. And she turns around and sees, she sees, you know, Kirk and goes, Now that's more like it. But no, I, I think Nimoy is just fantastic. And, you know, you, you were talking, Ralph, about uh, you, you didn't have time to really direct the actors when it came to you know, Sargon and Thalesa and, and Hanok, what was your, what was your take on, on just how, how Nimoy just like took right oh, to it? He just, he always did it starting with paradise. Yep. Oh, I mean, yeah. but that's the kind of actor he was. I mean, actors don't just act with the way they sound the words. They act with their bodies. You know, I got to say, Ralph, it's just, just now hitting me that between this side of paradise and return to tomorrow, and is there in truth no beauty? You got to direct Nimoy three times where he was freed from the constraints of being mm. Spock. Mm-hmm. And those are, I mean, even though he's clearly affected by the spores, or now he's Henoch, and, you know, in uh, uh, Is There in Truth No Beauty, he's the Medusa ambassador. Uh, but it's such, such a, Nimoy was just so marvelous in those yes. moments where he got to do that. Yes. The scripts gave him the opportunity. And uh, as a director, I would never restrict an actor. Mm-hmm. In other words, I stage it and come in and, and what I'm giving them to do, I hope it will be comfortable. If it wasn't, I always said, how, how does it feel? You know, as long as it feels right, 
then that gives them the freedom to go ahead and do what they what they're feeling and want to do. Wow. That's directing. Wow. That's awesome. Great. Great. <laughs> I, and by the way, you know, we've had comments about Shatner's performance and taking things too far or whatever. I really like him and Diana Maldor in this first moment yes. together. Yes. They're great. I agree completely. They are great together. You know, one thing I noticed that's I, I don't think was planned in any way, but works, I think, is that the fact that their hair color is somewhat similar makes it feel like they're a pair that fits together in a way, naturally, you know? And they're pleased with each other's bodies, and it's very romantic. And this whole time, Hennock, Mr. Spock, is watching them. Uh-huh. And it's just great, everything he's doing. This is an excellent body, Doctor. I seem to have received the best of the three. Strength, hearing, eyesight, all far above your human norms. I'm surprised the Vulcans never conquered your race. He already goes right for the conquering part. Yep. To Just to, to after all these hundreds of thousands of years... And that's where his mind is still at. And McCoy responses his response about you know the Vulcans uh, worship you know value peace above all. And you know Hennick is like yeah 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 of course. <laughs> well, it's great because we already know like right in this moment we know where this episode is going. You know, oh, we do. I didn't. Oh really? <laughs> the moment he says yes, of of course, just as we do, it's like oh he's lying. You know, right away for me. Um, and but already. Thalesa and Sargon, they're all getting weak. So what they need is a metabolic reduction injection that Hanok will be able to prepare because conveniently Hanok is very much adapted to the Vulcan body because of uh, the strength and agility that the Vulcans have. So when Hanok motions for Chapel to assist him with preparing that metabolic reduction injection, the music that you hear, and this is my tip when I first saw it, where Hanok was going with all this, is that you hear the music cue from Mirror, Mirror. It'll take me to your pharmacology laboratory. And that music cue is a foreshadowing of something sinister. And that was when I realized, I remember when I was a kid, when I first saw the episode or one of the first times I saw the episode, I realized, oh, wait a minute. Uh, I don't think I like this Hennock guy very much <laughs> because uh, uh, you hear that mirror, mirror music and you just think of like, you know, evil. We're in the lab and he's giving hypos to Nurse Chapel and giving her some instructions. And he gives the one for Thalesa. He gives the one for himself. And then he says, This one you will administer to Captain Kirk. Sargon is in his body. And Chapel immediately notices that it's not the same formula. No. That's correct. But since I will arrange for you to administer each of the injections, no one else will notice. (laughs) He's such a great villain. And he's so charming. Absolutely. Yeah, he totally is charming. You're right. In a dangerous way. In a very dangerous way. Without the same formula, Captain Kirk will die. And this is great. This is great. So how long has Hennock been in the Vulcan body? Uh, Maybe just maybe 20 minutes or so. So he, he puts his hand up to chapel. And and he's already picked up on the fact that Vulcans can do this thing called a mind melt. And he gives her, he touches her face. And I always assumed that he was giving her the mind melt. Mm-hmm. But is he is he exerting like maybe the power of his people on Chapel? Or is he in fact giving her a mind melt? Well, I, as Hennick, 
he he wouldn't have I, I wouldn't think he would have Spock's ability to mind meld, but they do talk. I mean, the fact that Sargon could speak out of nowhere, this is just he does it with his hand. Interesting. What do you think, Steve? I've always thought it was more Hanok and his mind control powers, but it wouldn't support. But I think we could certainly make the argument that it's a little of both. Well, it's mind control, but it's not mind yeah. meld. I mean, it could be a little from column A, a little from column B, but because yeah. he's doing something different than just a mind meld. Yeah, yeah. He's when not, he touches her face, it's not like that. You know, he's using both hands like Spock does, yeah. or you know, the one hand. Yeah, he just does it with the one hand. But like all these years. I always thought that, oh, wow, you know, Hanok got really got the Vulcan mind meld thing yeah. down pretty fast. But, you saw the body. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> what were you saying? I, I, I was, I wanted to say something. I've forgotten what it was. Yes. Well, you were about to say that you watched me prepare the formula and fill each of the hypos. And I love, too, that he's so confident that he has control of her mind oh, yeah. that he's happy to say exactly what's going to happen. You see, Sargon would not permit me to keep this body. It is therefore necessary for you to kill your captain so that Sargon will die with him. And a big, huge smile. Yeah, a big, like, you know, sort of, uh, like, it's almost like a mischievous grin. Yeah. Oh, on yeah. his face versus like a you know a, to, a you know big toothy smile. But what's what's also interesting you know, as we get back into Act Three, the rest of this episode is uh, you know except for the brief moments in the chambers on the planet, uh, it is a bottle show. You know the whole thing basically oh, takes yeah. place on the Enterprise, and you only have one guest star with uh, Diana Muldaur and and you know uh, uh, James Doohan probably got a little extra money by doing Sargon's voice. But no wonder this episode came in under budget. And directors were cheap. <laughs> you know what directors were paid for a show like this? No. What were they paid? $3,000. I, I was literally, that would have been my guess. Is yeah, $3,000 with five residuals. Five residuals. Wow. 3000 Man. Those, those five residuals got used up fast. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Your oh, five and, re- they were, and they weren't very large. Man. Their, their reputation was larger than, than the pay. Yes, clearly. <laughs> yeah. um, the delayed reputation. Better late than never. <laughs> uh, so we come back in Act 3, and the first thing we hear is a medical log where we hear that McCoy is worried. And then we cut to them working on these robots, and it's Sargon and Thalesa. Sargon, I remember a day long ago. We sat beside a silver lake. The air was scented with the flowers of our planet. I remember and this whole time, Henock is watching. That's the time he leans against a wall yes. in the, the most sinuous way with his arms crossed. I mean, it, it is so unlike anything Spock would do, even more so than hanging, hanging from the limb of the tree. And Ralph, you are shooting his full body. You're not just shooting like a... Oh, you know, no. Uh, I'm sh- yeah, I'm seeing him. Yeah, yeah, you get the whole full body shot versus just like, you know, just the torso of him, you know, standing there with his arms folded, which is much more effective because you see the casualness. And the the feet are are out, so he's leaning. There's there's a slanting in. You you get an impression of a character. 
And his he's so thin and long, it really yes. just visually looks great. And the other thing I was thinking is there are many, many times that there have been jokes or references to Spock as a devil, as Spock as the serpent in the apple. And this episode, he is the serpent. Like, that is really what he's doing. And in this scene in particular, because I love how he, you know, that Sargon goes, hey, we shouldn't do so much of this physical thing. We shouldn't do so much about this memory thing. It's too tempting. And Hanok says, In two days, you'll have hands of your own again, Felisa. Mechanically efficient and quite human looking. Android robot hands, of course. Hands without feeling. <laughs> Enjoy the taste of life while you can. He's injecting. Exactly. Yes. And then I love how he paints the picture of the future. And at the same time, Sargon is getting weak because he's not getting the same meds. And here's a question I have. There is a look that Thalesa gives to Henoch at this moment. Does she suspect him? I didn't notice the look. I don't think I did either. And and if there is a look, it wouldn't be a deep suspicion. No, it's more. it's kind of a glance. Maybe thinking more in terms the beginning of what he's talking about, the hands, and just starting to get a brief glimpse of her future. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's pro- that could be what it is. Sure. It's later. She's looking at a reflection, and Scotty comes in, and they're talking about building this android. And I think Scotty's actually kind of out of character. Have you prepared the Nagaton hydrocoils for the drawing Sargon supply? They're all a good. It'll do you. I don't think Scotty would say that. I think he... He knows that there's, he knows these guys made the transporter beam 100 miles down under the earth. He couldn't do that. So it seems very out of character for him to be this sort of rude to this god. Yeah, he's being rude. He's being rude. I thought that was a little out of character, too. What about you, Ralph? I think, to begin with, I do not like that frame. I like to have seen this scene start with either a mirror or that shiny thing that you saw Felicia looking into something that was shiny to see her reflection. I think it would have been effective if we had done a scene of Felicia, but still with the Dr. Anne Mulhall hairdo in front of it, taking her hair down. Oh, yeah. And then as she's doing that, that's when Spock comes in and sees her and then play the Spock scene. Lose lose the, the Scott scene. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The, the, I'm not crazy about the Scott scene either. I never it's, liked that it's, scene. It's just words. Yeah, and, and and that that frame that they had that is supposed to be scary. It's not scary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even when I was a kid, I didn't understand what that frame was. It no, always seemed, no. it, it seems like the wrong kind of prop, you know. <laughs> and, and so much more effective if you don't do that. That when Felicia for the first time sees the Bill Blackburn body. That's her first look at what she's going to become. Yeah, I mean, this, right. This, there's right. no meaning. Yeah, because the Bill Blackburn body is just so. Oh, it's spooky and spooky. Like, yeah, it's definitely spooky is a good word for it. I, I think they could have had a prop that was like a hand, you know, like a, just like making fingers move, sort of something like a piece of what a body would be, rather than this weird rectangular yeah, yeah. thing. Well, see, I'm thinking I'll just lose the scene. Just lose the whole thing. Yeah. Um, it's just fellatia and then Spock comes in and does the the yeah. the, the thing with her with the, his sexual approach. A thousand year prison, Felicia. And when it wears out, we'll build another one. And we'll lock ourselves into it for another thousand years. 
And I like that you staged it with her facing away from camera. So we're not seeing her face react to what he's saying at first. Sargon has closed his mind to a better way with these bodies. By the way, would Hanok do anything for mankind in in Spock's body? Nope. No. No. Clearly, he's got his own agenda, his own motives. I mean, this Power. is why he he was from the other side <laughs> to begin with. Power. You know, that's actually wait, uh, uh, Steve. You, that that's a really good question. What would Hanok have done if he stayed in Spock's body and Sargon didn't make it? Would he have just gone on his way? Or would he have basically taken over the Enterprise and done some serious uh, conquering with it? I think he'd take over every planet he could, and I think he would do. I think he would use people like playthings for his amusement. You know, what does that sound like? Um, like Trelane, maybe, or Trelane, or Gary Gary Mitchell? Mitchell. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolute yep. power corrupting. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. And he asks, would you prefer this? And he pulls her to look at the android. No. I'm beginning to hate it. And we're in sickbay. And we get a call from Sargon from the Deck 6 briefing room. And he seems sick. And then Thalesa walks in on Sargon. And I like that Shatner tries to put himself together and look like he's not as sick and weak as he is. Yes. It is an excellent body. There, you see, I feel better already. And she now takes what she got from Henoch and she l- brings it to Sargon. In time, a host body will become accustomed to us, husband. One of the things I wonder about, by the way, is Sargon is the most morally advanced of the right. three. He's a idealistic and optimistic, for yeah. sure. There's some way you can look at this that he needed Thalesa to discover what he already knew in the course of this episode, because that's kind of what happens later on. And so what I wonder is when she says this, obviously saying, hey, I'm thinking about keeping this body, is Sargon surprised that she's having this thought? And I don't think he is. I, well, that's a great uh, question. I do think he's surprised. It's not too long until he falls down, though. It's very my, soon, yeah. My thing is that after she has done the mirror thing and after Henek has made a, a move on her she has come to Sargon with the thought that there is a way for them the two of them to continue mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. if, yeah but, but you don't have to think even think about his response because he's going to drop dead I feel like if he was yeah. in perfect health, yeah. he would have been like, what are you talking about? Absolutely no way. That's not, not an option. Yeah. But, you know, he was just seconds away from killing over. He, As he, it was, he, he was, was trying to just... Before, before he has a chance to even think about what she has just said. Yeah, yeah. But, I don't... The, but the important thing in this scene is would be fellatia. No, beloved. If we torment ourselves... Beloved, what will that word mean to a machine? Our thoughts will intertwine. Will they, husband? Will they intertwine like this? And then she brings himself physically to him, and there is a big, huge kiss. And he definitely kisses her back, and then he pulls away, and then... 
across. He goes down. Collapses. Yep. And then McCoy comes in and says, with that dramatic pause, He's dead. And that's the end of Act 3. Now, I really feel like Shatner and Muldaur are, and we've said this already, they're so good together. Oh, yes. They are such great chemistry. And Steve, the point that they are have some similar features in terms of the color of their hair and, you know, they're both about the same height or whatever. They, they just look good together. And as, as Kirk and, and Mulhall, and now as Sargon and Thalesa, both ways, they are great together. And that just shows you how good they are as actors. Do I list one death or two? Sargon is dead, but is Captain Kirk dead? And then what we see, which I think is, I think this is uh, cool, is that he's basically keeping the body just a little bit alive. And then we're looking at now the mostly completed android body, and it is creepy. It's creepy. So the body of the android body uh, is William Blackburn, who has appeared in dozens of episodes as the background guy. While George Decay was off uh, filming the Green Berets, he was the navigator in the gold shirt sitting at the helm. And he was also Lieutenant Hadley. He was finally given a name in a piece of the action when he was told by Scotty to find out what a heater is. But he also did a lot of the tests. He did the test to make up for the Tolerite. Uh, and also Steve, he was the guy in the big bunny rabbit outfit in Shirley's. So now he's the android and there's, it's like, it's really surreal. You know, it's like shiny and it, it looks exactly like the way that Henock and Thalesa were describing this body would look like, like this is not going to be human, even though it looks it, but it certainly is not. And there's a, there's a great blooper of uh, after the scene is finished of William Blackburn tearing off the makeup. And uh, one of the other uh, people on the, uh, on the crew is uh, saying to him, you wanted to be in show business. You got it, kid. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I, understand, um, I understand that the makeup of, from what I've read was very uncomfortable. Oh, it looks, looks it. it, looks it. <laughs> well, I pretend to work on that thing, Hanuk. You know, you never intended to leave Spock's body. This is your new home, Felicia. Once occupied, I'll add female features and some texturing. You no doubt want the mechanism to at least appear to be a woman. <laughs> all the little drips of venom are so good. You could hear all the little things making it sound more and more horrible. Um, and I love, too, that the hand lifts up yes. as he's doing this. That's a great choice. It is ready, Felicia. No. You have no excuse to keep the real body any longer. Sargon would have required that you enter the mechanism immediately. I cannot live in that thing. And she's out. I think this scene in sickbay is really good with McCoy. Yep, I do too. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great scene. She comes in right away and she's like, uh, that I, I already know how I'm going to get this guy. Would you like to save your Captain Kirk? And then she says, This body pleases me. I intend to keep it. I see. Do you think McCoy is surprised? Uh, no, I don't. I don't either. I think he saw it coming. And Hanok intends to keep Spock's body, of course. Hanok's plans are his own affair. I wish only to exist in peace as a living woman. 
He's, and again, I think this is really well written. There, there are things in this episode that I don't quite think work, but when it works, I think it works great. If you're asking my approval. I require only your silence. And then she says, and this is interesting, that apparently she's just going to pretend to be Dr. Anne Mulhall. That's her plan, which I don't believe at all. No. I, don't th- I don't think she could do that. Right. And McCoy's response is exactly in character. Neither Jim nor I can trade a body we don't own. It happens to belong to a young woman. Who you hardly know. Almost a stranger to you. As if that makes a difference at this point. I will not peddle flesh. I'm a physician. And this is when she loses it. A physician? In contrast to what we are. You are a, a prancing, savage medicine man. You dare defy one you should be on your knees worshipping? with a single thought. The first thing is, I, I wonder who Thalesa was before the cataclysm. That's my problem. This is showing an evil side. All of a sudden, Henek, mm-hmm. who's evil, she is evil. Is this whole race, except for Sargon, evil? And, and the effect with the purple things around him and his writhing, I, I just think it's, it suffers to make her evil, and it puts a different angle on just on on their people that that's a really good point because so if Thalesa was Sargon's beloved his wife yes and now you know even though she is being seduced by the temptations of the flesh yes that she is so quick to turn on Sargon not quick to turn on him but to try to convince Sargon that keeping the the human bodies is is more desirable than getting yes. into the android bodies. But what, what's interesting, what I what, it, what occurred to me while I was watching the scene is that this is the second episode in a row to examine temptations of the flesh after by any other name. And the third episode in season two after Cat's Paw. But in this case, Thalesa and Hanak didn't need to be seduced they 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 sort of took it upon themselves to to take in the, the the temptations of the flesh but i think it's interesting that these three episodes all examine the temptations in in these ways yeah, to be to be led to to have the possibility but not to go to the place where she attacks yeah word relents i mean just the fact that she thought and was thinking in that direction just to get that i'm not sure it could be worked out but to get past it so when the nurse comes in and the doctor goes out and just move into that next phase without this. I agree with everything that's been said. And I think maybe the way to do it would, would have been through using passive choices rather than active choices, which is exactly the opposite of what you would normally do in a story. But she comes in with a plan. I'm going to force you, which she doesn't have to force him at all, to let me do this evil thing. As opposed to if there was a time limit, hey, if you continue to stay in this body then this person will die. And McCoy is trying to convince her to go back into the, to, to switch rather than her trying to convince McCoy. I think that might've made her less evil and more tempted, I think. Well, but we're giving, again, talk. And when we get this far, we need to get to the move it along. chapel thing and what they do there. We need to get to that as quickly as you can. Yeah, good point. By the way, this is also the third time we've had transferring consciousness into android bodies 
first with what little girl, what are little girls made of, and then in iMud. And in both those cases, Corby and the androids then apparently can build way better bodies than Sargon and Henok can build, <laughs> you know, because these ones seem kind of crappy. Well, the, these were done under Paramount. <laughs> the others were done under Desilu. <laughs> that is a great well, joke. <laughs> well, well, the, the, the planet XO3, those, the Android technology was left behind by the old ones. And in iMud, those androids were, were like a race uh, for, for, for who knows how long, whereas uh, Henok and, and, or rather, uh, Sargon uh, and Thalesa have to build these bodies from scratch. Yes. And I, but I do love what I really do like about the setup is that she's torturing Bones and then she sees what she is doing yes. and stops herself. Yes. Before the fluttering. Yeah. 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 The fire. <laughs> I mean, that is so much like the stuff that they did later in the third season with Freiburger adding the Batman kind of stuff. I agree with you. I agree with you. I don't think that effect it works. It cheapens. Yep. By the way, the, the number of times cast members in Star Trek have to act in pain from some magical thing mm-hmm. or, you know, it's just a lot. It's a lot yeah, of times. Yeah, but but, but not but let the actor do it. Don't do that other. Totally. I agree. I mean, um, they, they did that in Batman. Yeah. <laughs> I am pleased, my beloved. It is good you have found the truth yourself. And this is why I go, he had to be testing her. He was watching this whole thing. He let her torture McCoy. He could have said something before that, but he didn't. That's a great point. I never realized that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and that's the, in other words, he does that before she does the tor- torturing of him, just the arguing and the fact that she's putting forth the plan. That that does it, I think, Steve, hmm. for, for Sargon to come in. If he comes in before. Yeah, yeah. But but then you lose. I don't know. I'm going back and forth because I do like the idea that she has to overcome her own temptation without Sargon's help. I think that's important too. Wow, so, that's a great point. Yeah. Well, if well, we're seeing her be tempted, she because she just as Kirk has to willingly get his crew to oh, willingly oh, yeah, go no, along. No, no, you're right. You're right. Yeah, I think it, it, it doesn't right. all work perfectly. By the way, just for people listening who haven't tried to write screenplays or make movies, this is why it's actually really hard. <laughs> because you're trying to do a whole bunch of stuff and make it exciting and get to the end and get it in a certain length of time, it's hard, you know? And 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 we're at the place where we're not trying to write a screenplay. We're trying to do to rewrite a screenplay that somebody else suffered to get to here. Yeah. <laughs> and we have the, you know, and I've been watching this episode since I was six or seven years old. You know, I've had a lot of lot more time <laughs> to think about it than they had. And I love too that. We, we hear that Sargon has moved into the Enterprise itself, and now he's communicating with Thalacia, and she understands what's happening. Doctor, leave us. Sargon has a plan. We have much work to do. And uh, Chapel is right there. McCoy exits, and then immediately rethinks about it, I think, and goes, wait, I should get back in there, and can't. Is it possible that Sargon is responsible for Chapel being there, maybe? A hundred percent. I've always thought he was responsible. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yes. yes, I agree. Yes. Well, and this also goes to how, you know, Sargon can read people's minds. We know this from the beginning. How much did he know about what was going on? It, it seems like he didn't know because otherwise it wouldn't go the way that it did. But why doesn't he know? 
you know. Usarkin? Yeah. Yeah, he knows. He's wanting to, it to play out before he steps in. But did he know that Henock was going to try to kill him? Oh, uh, I don't. I don't think no, he. No, he couldn't have known that. I don't think he does. I. I, I don't think he does. No, no, that he doesn't know. Bones is trying to get back in, and then he turns. The door opens, and there is Chapel, looking very stiff and strange, like a robot. And then we hear Star Trek theme, and we turn around, and there is Jim Kirk. Jim, are you all right? Yes, I'm fine. But the blooper of the scene, <laughs> the blooper of the scene, McCoy or DeForest Kelly goes over to Shatner and he says, Jim. And then Kirk responds. He says, I'm fine, Bones. And then DeForest Kelly says, are oh, you all right? <laughs> and they bust up laughing and the, they try another take. And while they're about to do the next take, they're still giggling. <laughs> Maybe they should have included the blooper and released that, and then I would have liked it from, from the beginning. Um, it could have been a comedy. Yeah. And then we look at the destroyed receptacles one by one, and finally finishing on Spock's. Jump the receptacles. Spock's consciousness was in one of them. It was necessary. This is the thing that doesn't work for me. I don't believe because either Kirk is in on it, which he's apparently not, or he would have a different reaction. If he really thought that he just that Spock is now dead, he would not be behaving the way that he's behaving right mm -hmm, now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Agreed. What are you talking about? There is no Spock to return to his body. You've killed a loyal officer, your best friend. Bones prepare a hypo, the fastest, deadliest poison to Vulcans. Spock's consciousness is gone. We must kill his body, the thing in it. And then there is a quick cut to the bridge and Uhura with an ear-piercing scream. Is such an effective cut. Was that part of your plan? Was it in yes. the script? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's great. That, that hard cut into that moment is so jarring and so scary and, and so wait. perfect with the previous line. And then Hanak is standing over Uhura, so clearly he was torturing her. And then you, f you hear the mirror, mirror music capture the feeling that he is uh, evil. And I love that Sulu kind of starts to make a move. Must I make an example of you too, Hal? And then in comes Kirk and Bones and Dr. Mulhall. And without even turning around, he says, Hey, Captain. And they go down. And then McCoy is trying to give him that shot of poison with the hypo. Fortunately, Doctor. I know every thought of every mind around me. And he stops him, tells Chapel to take the, the hypo, which he does. And inject him with it. And she starts to, and then quickly turns and injects Hennock. And Hennock bolts up. He tries to laugh it off. Fools. I'll simply transfer to another place, another body. And then he feels Sargon's presence. Oh, Sargon, please. Let me. Let me. Trust. And as he's saying transfer, the potion just completely knocks him out. And Nimoy is great. He really is. Because there's so many levels of first the confidence and the laughter, and then the realization that Sargon is still alive. And, you know, he's, he's, this is all just himself. He's not playing off anybody. He's just got to create it all himself. Yeah. It's really good. And then Jim jumps up. 
And now he has this big reaction. My friend Spock, if there'd only been another way. And it's like, this. I just don't believe it. And I, I kind of understand the logic of, well, if Kirk knew, then Hennock could read his mind or something, and then he would know that what was the plan. But it doesn't work for me. My feeling is that the reason this last part doesn't work for me is that it feels so rushed. Like in, in the last four minutes, they have to get on the bridge, kill Spock's body to kill Hennock. And there's still more to do after that. And this is where it just feels contrived. And actually, the thought of Hennock being on the bridge and controlling the Enterprise itself, that should have deserved the whole act versus just the last couple of minutes, because that would have made the episode really interesting. It would have been a really interesting shift into uh, of the episode. But, you know, regardless, you know, we're here and, and now we've only got a couple minutes left in act four and it, it feels rushed and not very effective. Absolutely. And this is also why it would have been good to cut that Scotty scene, because then you get an extra minute that you could mm-hmm. spread around with this stuff. Mm-hmm. I could not allow your sacrifice of one so close to you. And that light hits Spock and it hits Chapel, which nobody really notices, except when she starts to become faint. Jim. Uh, McCoy catches her, and then Spock sits up. This is literally deus es machina. This is God in the machine, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. is that a literal God has gone into these things and fixed it so it works perfectly. It seems, Doctor, the injection was only enough to cause unconsciousness. But Hennock believed and fled the body. He is destroyed. And they're going, well, how are you alive? Because you're, the receptacle where your consciousness was, was destroyed. And he looks over to Nurse Chapel, who in a very smug voice, I think, says, and please, I won't, smug's not exactly the right word, but pleased with herself. Please, yeah. That is why I was summoned into sick bay, Doctor. Mr. Spock's consciousness was placed in me. And then kind of almost romantically says, We shared consciousness together. <laughs> Which is really the closest she's ever going to get to sex with Mr. Spock, I think. For sure, for sure. We now know we cannot permit ourselves to exist in your world, my children. Thalesa and I must now also depart into oblivion. And this is where I disagree. Okay, let's hear it. I don't like a, a story where people set out with an objective, an important objective, a dramatic objective, and at the end, they say, oh, well, we can't do it. Mm, mm. And that's what's happening here, that they came here to do something, but it doesn't get done. So we'll just let us have some time together and we'll call, we'll call it quits. Interesting. No, that's a good point. And, and I don't know how, how they, what they would say, but maybe since they haven't been able to do it, at least to tell these people what had happened to them what had caused their downfall mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to lay that out. If, if you can't do it for them, maybe by talking to them, to help them prepare so that it won't happen to them. So, so they, they, you know, mm. through all of this, they never hear any wisdom about right. sure. You don't, you don't go down the same path that we did. Yes, yes, yes. You know, what's interesting. And I, I is that, there's a lot of times that we've seen godlike people disappear. That they couldn't be exist in our world. We had Charlie, who disappeared in a very disturbing way. We had Trelane, who couldn't exist with humans. He got taken away. We got Apollo, who disappears because he can't be who he wants to be in our world. And now we have these two. And, and I'm Organians. And yeah, well, the Organians, but they don't 
they do disappear, but it's different. But yes, the Ukrainians too, <laughs> too. But but like what, what I go is it seems like Roddenberry in particular is struggling with a thing, and I think he doesn't know how to resolve the thing other than go away. Right. You know. Oh yeah. And I think that Ralph, what you're onto is that's an interesting is what could they give us. As right. they depart, right. um, what could they teach us about the world and about life? And this is also, again, where writing's hard because you have to come up with a way for us to avoid something in the future, to teach us something about humanity in this moment, because the lesson's got to work for us. But they don't do that. No. Um, and Kirk asks if there's anything they can do for them, and he asks for one last moment together. There, there was a, a mushy scene. Yeah, it was mushy. But again, because it's the two of them, because it's Shatner and Muldaur, and because they're so great together. Yeah. That but, I'm that... talking, but I'm talking about the story. Ah, yeah. right. And in spite of what Sam Goldwyn said, which is that you should only send messages through Western Union, I think the screenplay is a good place to send one occasionally. I think if you are telling the audience, you know, a message, I on Sam Goldwyn's team. I think if you're showing them and making them think about things, yeah, oh, yeah absolutely, yeah. But they do, they do uh, get possessed by Sargon and Thalesa one last time. They share a kiss, and then just to make things awkward, our two godlike powers leave mid-kiss, yeah. leaving them in an awkward moment. Well, they just wanted to savor that last moment. They wanted that last moment to be the moment that they go into oblivion with. Yeah, but there again, this important thing, I mean, this strong story that for, they came to do something and settled for that, that that has always, you know, even, even as I did it, I kept waiting, hoping that you would have read all of the Dugan's screenplays, what had been his ending, because I can't believe that be, because of the conflict between him and Roddenberry, I mean, uh, it had to be something important, but I didn't know what it was. Well, uh, John Dugan, uh, in addressing that moment of oblivion, said, Quote, the oblivion idea was Roddenberry's, not mine. My philosophy was that these entities would exist as spirits for eternity, but they wouldn't have their bodies. That might be a small thing, but I have a reputation and the philosophy, and I certainly won't stand for oblivion in the afterlife. So I used my pseudonym, John Kingsbridge, instead. Hmm. So that was the point in which okay. John John Dugan was was pushed to take his name off of it because uh, he wanted the the spirits to live forever, you know, just out there, the energy forces out there. And Roddenberry is like, nope, they're going to go off into oblivion, and that was enough to to cause him to take his name off the screenplay. Then I'm not that much out of step with Dugan because no. if they can't live in oblivion, at least to try to help and give some of talk to these people. So I'm in the same camp. And what I would have done is there's a, I think philosophically, you could make it a really interesting idea, which is that Sargon learns a lesson. Sargon has been looking to get bodies again. Sargon has seen himself as separate and has been sitting for a half a million years trying to do this thing and now realizes like, oh, I'm already connected to all living things in the world. I'm all, we're already all one. And I'm already all one with Thalesa. And we just can exist in that spiritual form connected to everything. Yeah, it's, you know? it's an extreme choice to to just make them, mm -hmm. you know, basically cease to exist after 
hundreds of thousands of years of of waiting for a moment and then not being able to do anything with that moment that they get that they just now that's you know i never thought of that but i agree with that assessment and uh uh uh, it's abrupt and it's too bad they couldn't figure out some way to to do something more with it but again that last those last five minutes did feel quite rushed and of course the what they're doing is that they're turning Mission Impossible into Mission Unfortunate. Oh, <laughs> oh well said. Wow, well said. yeah. Well, George Takei, in his return to Star Trek after 10 episodes, said, I returned to Los Angeles heartsick and resentful. The scripts I had taken with me to Georgia had all been filmed. Well, the lines, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the lines <laughs> I had so anxiously committed to memory had already been spoken by someone else. Of course, that's uh, Walter Koenig. The show I had returned to was titled Return to Tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Then he says, tomorrow, indeed. It was like returning to the dinner table after briefly excusing myself, only to find my meal cold and half eaten by someone else. (laughs) Oh, man, that hurts. Yeah. And Diana Muldaur, uh, to end on a positive note, said the qualities that I admired in Gene Roddenberry were his creativity. In Hollywood, they buy you because you're creative, and then they try to take it out of you to make you commercial, and Roddenberry never gave in. That's true. So I'll, I'll kind of give my final thoughts first, which is we, we've said a lot of criticisms about the episode, and and this really sums up my the way that I love Star Trek, which is that are there things that I that don't quite work in this episode for me? Absolutely. But the things I love, I love so much. I mean, obviously this speech is really just important in terms of Star Trek and important in the way that I look at the world. You know, I once heard someone say that we always say safety first and we really should usually say safety second. It's not that safety isn't important. It's just that it's not the most important thing. And that is part of risk is our business. And the moments of performance in here. There's so many good ones. And in particular, watching what Nimoy does is so fantastic. This is an episode I will absolutely watch again, despite the criticism I have with it, because this is just still great Star Trek. I agree completely. Uh, in addition to everything, uh, echoing your sentiments about the risk is our business speech. And of course, Nimoy's performance. Uh, I think that that even when Star Trek was not top tier, like a mock time or, or, Mirror, mirror, or sitting on the edge of forever. And uh, when even when it was second tier, like Return to Tomorrow, it was still excellent, excellent television. And there is so much to love about Return to Tomorrow that even some of the newer criticisms that I've developed throughout this conversation, criticisms that I completely agree with, especially with regards to the outcome of Sargon and Thalesa and and Hanak. Uh, I still really, really enjoy this episode, and I was I was very happy rewatching it, kind of rediscovering to I was returning to what I loved about Return to Tomorrow, and I think the episode has so many strengths, uh, and I ultimately really, really do like this episode very, very much. This deep into season two, when there were a lot of problems after the takeover of by Paramount over Desilu and the, the smaller budget and the shorter schedule, that Ralph, you turned in a top-notch episode uh, that was done under schedule and under budget. <laughs> and uh, again, working with uh, Jerry Finnerman, both of you bringing out the best in each other. And I would love to hear what you think about this episode now after this conversation, Ralph. I 
of course, like it much better. I, I respect it more than I did before. But I also recognize that it was done under unfortunate conditions. It was late in the second season, all, all the things we have talked about. I wondered, Gene Roddenberry, who took over and then just rewrote the script and nobody else touched it. <laughs> I wonder how much that was a reaction to Gene Coons leaving and the fact that it was his wanting to take control, creative control, to be recognized as the creator of Star Trek as he had been at the beginning. And maybe I wonder if he hadn't felt a little resentment at the attention that Kuhn got for reforming. I agree with that assessment yeah. because, Ralph, when Roddenberry was away for a period of time, during that time that Gene Kuhn was really the showrunner for yeah. Star Trek, and he took First of all, I mean, he did some really great episodes, and he yeah. also, you know, injected a lot of humor with regards to Trouble with Tribbles and I Mud. And when Rodbury came back, that's when their relationship got very strained. They butted heads, and that was one of the big reasons why Gene Kuhn left. And I think, Steve, when we were talking about, I believe it was when we were doing our discussion on A Private Little War, which was rewritten by Roddenberry, I remember saying to you, Steve, at that time, that I feel like there was a Roddenberry overplayed his hand a little bit here because he was trying to take back control of Star Trek. Yeah. But in this case, with Return to Tomorrow, I think you said earlier in this discussion here that this felt like a first season episode because of like the yeah. captain's log in the beginning and, and you know, Kirk is uh, more embracing the unknown and uh, like leaning into it like the Kirk of the first season would do. He had the gravitas that he maybe, this the show, while still great, didn't have in the beginning of the second season. So I actually, I mean, I agree completely with that assessment, Ralph, that you know, Roddenberry was like, he's like, okay, I'm back. It's still my show. And, and certainly going into the third season, when it was looking like Star Trek was going to have a great time slot in the third season, yes. Roddenberry was going to come back as the day-to-day -day showrunner like he was in the first season. But that's a whole other conversation that we'll get to uh, when we get to that point. But I have a much deeper appreciation for Return to Tomorrow than I did before I this conversation. And I always really liked it a lot. And uh, Steve, I'm glad you feel the same way. And Ralph, uh, I, I know that we are both thrilled that you have a, 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 a better appreciation for it than, than you did before, because, um, you know, you've I'm, I'm guessing you've never done these kind of deep dives per episode like you've been doing with us. Not this deep, but I mean, literally, th this is the kind of stuff I did in preparing shows when I was directing them. I have another point I'd like to bring up. Yep. Steve, you made a point on obsession of the your feelings about the bedroom scene and the fact that things were discussed. Mm. I liken this situation, the problem between Roddenberry and Kuhn had reached the place. Gene Kuhn wanted to quit. Roddenberry wasn't, a, wasn't objecting. What if Roddenberry had done what you were talking about and said, hey, Gene, let's talk. Mm. Let's talk. Wow. I think that is a fantastic point. Wouldn't that? Well, and, and the thing is, 
You need other people to, you need McCoy's and Spock's to argue with you to make your best stuff. Absolutely. And here's, no, here's another question I have. Number one, John Meredith Lucas direct, produced 10 episodes. Why wasn't he brought in to produce the third season? He was not brought on. That's a great question. So John Meredith Lucas, you know, they, they felt like they, meaning people like Bob Justman and Dorothy Fontana, felt like Lucas was good enough. He was no Gene Kuhn. And even when Lucas wrote his screenplay for The Changeling, which was his first Star Trek screenplay, uh, he was very, very much rewritten by, I believe, Dorothy Fontana. So when it came time for the, the third season, the long story short is that uh, it looked like Star Trek was going to get a great time slot. And uh, it was, I think, Monday nights at eight o'clock. Yes. And yes. then what happened was laughing, right. Laughing was going to go to Friday nights, but the producer of laughing, whose name I can't recall was like George Slater. You are, you are a rock star, Steve so, Morris. This is the, one of the few times that I could out Mance Mance. I did. Oh that, my yeah. gosh. <laughs> I, I am not worthy. That was awesome. So yes, the producer of laughing George Slater did not, I mean, he was like, there's no way we're going to Friday nights at 10. So they were going, NBC was going to get more money airing Laugh-In than it was going to get airing Star Trek. So they gave George Slater what he wanted, which was Monday nights at eight. And then they gave Roddenberry Friday nights at 10. And that's when Roddenberry felt betrayed. And that's when he said, there's no way I'm going to go back to running the show like I did in the first season yeah. and put all this heartache into the show if you're going to if you're looking to kill it anyway. So Roddenberry, you know, said, I'm going to help you find a new producer. And that's when he he basically handpicked Fred Freiberger. And, that, and that's my next question. Yeah. Why? Because yeah. Fre Freiberger was one of the four or five producers in the first season of the wild, wild west. And none of them got it until Michael Garrison, who had produced, who had created the show and wanted to produce it, but he wasn't a producer, so CBS wouldn't let him. And so they were bringing in these different producers to try to do it, and none of them got it. And Freiberger was one of them. Well, Freiberger was brought in because he could get the job done. He was not brought in because he had a great understanding of Star Trek. He was he was brought in because his reputation was okay. If Paramount wants the episode done in six days, six days, and they want the episodes done for for even less in season three than in season two, because the budget went down to one hundred seventy eight thousand five hundred dollars. Yes, and then you also have to give the stars raises. So you have so much less money to do a show like Star Trek. Okay. And Freiberger was, was the guy that said, look, this is the, he, you want the, the, if you want a show done on schedule and on budget, this is the, this is the guy to do it. And that's why he got the job. Yep. And Lucas, I, I don't know why he didn't take on uh, uh, season three, but uh, I mean, I thought he was, you know, granted Kuhn had a lot to do with the teleplays that were yeah. finished off in season two. But he Lucas still did a good job. I mean, he yes. he he did a he did a great job with the Ultimate Computer, which was another another excellent uh, screenplay. Yeah. So it just goes to show you guys and everyone listening that Star Trek had so much going against it 
And, and by the end of the second season, it had more going against it. And by the third season, it had even more going against it. What happened to Star Trek in, in its third season, you know, and again, this is something we'll, we'll discuss, is a Greek tragedy because uh, it, it should have been given everything it needed to, to make it more popular by getting a better time slot, by getting a more, more, more of a budget, uh, by getting Roddenberry back in the, in the showrunner's chair. Yes, yes. Uh, but what happened was that, that, that they, uh, uh, everything was stacked against Star Trek. And the fact that you still got maybe 12 out of 24 episodes that were pretty decent is, a, I guess, a, a, a minor victory. You know, because it's better than getting a whole season of uh, The Way to Edens. And of course, and a major victory is that 55 years later, it is still here. Exactly. Boy, is it here. Boy, is it here. (laughs) So obviously we had a lot of thoughts on return to tomorrow but we would love to hear your thoughts and there are all sorts of ways you can reach out to us you can visit us on facebook just do a search for enterprise incidents and sometimes if you leave a comment there it's very possible ralph sinensky might respond to you because he has in the past you can also find us on twitter at enter incidents on instagram at enterprise incidents and you can find me at sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram and if you like love stories one of the greatest love stories in the history of film is west side story and we did it on our podcast five years ago with david cornu a writer and composer and broadway actor singer and director milena govich and we just had them back for a live show two days ago to compare the original West Side Story to the Steven Spielberg remake and that you can find on the cinephiles. Scott, how would people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Man. So make sure you support Enterprise Incidents by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a great review. Hopefully you you want to leave a great review, but please do give us a review on Apple Podcasts because that's how we sort of stay uh, sort of in motion on Apple Podcasts and make sure you share Enterprise Incidents on your social media platforms with other Star Trek fans, big or small, uh, and make sure you support us on Anchor FM. And how do people do that, Steve? Well, there's going to be a link right in the show notes. So if you look at this episode right below, look down on your however you get your podcast, and there'll be a link to Anchor. You can subscribe as little as 99 cents to support the show. And we we do this because this is a true labor of love. But it is a lot of work, too, and we definitely could use your support to keep the show going. Well, Ralph Sinetsky, where can people find your website and read all about your adventures over your incredibly illustrious career in Hollywood? My website, Ralph Cinematrek, you can Google that or just go to Sinetsky.com. And I have a question. How do you leave a comment on Apple Podcasts? Because when I go there, all I see are the places where I can see the shows, but there's no place that I've found where I can leave a comment. Well, if you scroll down on the Apple podcast page, there is a section where you can rate the show and write a review. And that's how you can leave your comment on yeah. Apple Podcasts. I- I'll talk you through it, uh, you know, uh, when we're not on, uh, <laughs> when okay. we're not doing the podcast. Well, I, th- I thought by bringing it up now, all the other people that are confused would hear about it too. Yes. So, well, for everyone listening, so you go to the Apple podcast page and you scroll down and there it is a section where you can rate it with five stars and then write, write a little review about what you love about enterprise incidents. And Ralph, we are beyond grateful for the fifth time that you've joined us 
for the fifth time here on Enterprise Incidents. We hope that you have enjoyed uh, diving back in okay. and, and uh, having a new appreciation for this episode that, yep, 55 years ago, and here we are still talking about it and, and loving it in so many new ways, especially after this conversation. And I know that uh, your, your next episode uh, that you did direct is in season three. It's, Is There in Truth No Beauty?, so we hope that you will join us again for that episode. But before then, so we're recording this episode on uh, April 13th. And on May 1st, Ralph, I believe that's your birthday. Yes. And how old will you be on May 1st, 2022? 99. 99 years old. So let us be the first to wish you a very, very, very Happy 99th birthday to you, Ralph Sinetsky. And thank you again for joining us. And on the next episode of Enterprise Incidents. So another parallel Earth situation here. After we had the Planet of the Romans with Bread and Circuses, the Planet of the Gangsters and a piece of the action. Now we got the Planet of the Nazis in Patterns of Force, which was written by John Meredith Lucas. That is next time on Enterprise Incidents. Join us, and until then, keep going boldly.